Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode three in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 20th of February. And what have we got on the schedule this week, Leon? Well, we've got a terrific interview with a guy called Howard Dray, who runs a company called the Old Colonial Cookie Company. Yeah. And uh, would you believe they actually sell shortbread to England? That's right, and they're going to give it a good try to sell it to Scotland. That's right, that's right. Uh, that's right. Talk about uh, selling snow to the Eskimos. Indeed, it is too. Actually, Howard gave us some uh, shortbreads, and they're pretty jolly they good. They are very, very good. So if you see them around, <laughs> I recommend them. And uh, <clears throat> we also have a talk with uh, Nick Gruen. That's right, and he's going to talk to us all about what's happening in Greece. Yeah, and uh, what isn't happening and what should be happening. That's right. So uh, let's listen to uh, Howard. Howard Dre, the old colonial cookie company, is from based in Lilydale in Melbourne, is exporting cookies right around the world, 13 different countries. You're even selling shortbread to England, which is like selling snow to the Eskimos. You're selling your cookies to China. How do you do it? We use a lot of um, expertise through uh, places like Austrade, Australian government, Victorian government, uh, exporting arms and stuff like that, where we've tried to find reputable distributors, importers and distributors that can take title to the product and in turn uh, assist in warehousing and then distribution, effective distribution into their markets. Tell us about China. When did you get it to China? China's been... An interesting process where the growth in China has uh, possibly been operational at around about uh, 200%. We did uh, a seminar with um, the Australian, the Victorian government, sorry, um, where a delegation came out to Melbourne. We met 13 uh, representatives, eight of them ended up placing orders straight off. So, uh, big growth market for us. Yeah, how long ago was that? Because noticing what's going on in China, Western foods are pretty high up on the middle class uh, range, aren't they? Yeah, well, our product sits in the mid to high end premium market. And uh, with the the Chinese market, uh, the wonderful world of people see it in, on, in, in a store, and all I have to do is Google it. And we end up getting a getting inquiries and stuff like that through the website. And that's been the same in the Middle East and the other markets? No, that's been slightly different because we've been doing Middle East and uh, other Asian areas for some number of years. And that's all happened through leads, inquiries, etc., which we followed up and found distribution networks to do it. And you sell to New York as well? Yes, we do a product in um, New York or New Jersey, um, which is a private label. So that's for a uh, supermarket? It's for a supermarket chain in uh, the New Jersey area. And speaking of private label, you also do it for Tesco in the UK, don't you? No, we don't do a Tesco private label, but currently at the moment, Tesco have got an Australiana theme happening in some of their stores and it's our branded product of Butterfingers. So tell us about, you know, you're here in Lilydale, Victoria, which is, what, fair distance from Melbourne. Do you air freight most of the stuff? Was there a use-by-date issue there? The product has a 12-month shelf life from date of manufacture, and we primarily bake our product for export. 
on a bake-to-order program to ensure the, the freshness. It's not air freighted. It can be sent by normal transport in containers and so forth. So a big container ship, would, you, you, yeah, and that would be a, an aggregation. Yes, it's, uh, we do uh, direct uh, you know, free, uh, FOB, as they call it, free on board, and then the, the distributor takes title to the product from there. Now, all the biscuits are made here, aren't they? Correct. And so how many do you have working for you? Uh, we have 14 people, uh, full-time employees, and we operate with all Australian ingredients. All our packaging is ma- manufactured in Australia, so that's why we call it a product of Australia. And that's, that's a selling point in many of these markets. Absolutely. Uh, be the good reputation of purity of product, this sort of thing? Correct, the, with the issues and also having uh, internationally recognised food standards, SQFs and so forth like that, for the people that know that out there, that helps also promote it. Being all Australian ingredients uh, and packaging, as I said, uh, certainly helps it and keeps it lean and green. Some companies have gone into China. One very large chocolate company, for example, that I could better not name, and they found that the Chinese market at that point didn't like Western chocolate. So then they did a chocolate that they thought would sell to the Chinese, and that didn't either. Where do you reckon you are? This is some years ago, of course, but is the taste in the middle classes of China changing? Are you contributing to the change? Oh, I hope I am contributing to the change, um, but the process is that with uh, a shortbread um, with made with butter, flour and sugar, of course, uh, it's not too sweet um, and it's not too sour, if you want to call it that. So it's sort of a, a traditional type. It's a traditional type Scottish res- recipe, actually. So obviously the British, have um, you've got a good chance there. You haven't cracked Scotland yet. Not quite, not quite. <laughs> Do you reckon you'll have a go? Of course, we'll have a go. <laughs> yeah, they they are the shortbread capital of the world, aren't Absolutely. they? Absolutely, and that's where you know we compete with that that particular uh, market or supplier out of Scotland head on. The product is actually a an old family Scottish recipe. I was going to ask you that. Yes. <laughs> yes. So tell me, I mean, uh, many manufacturers now moving into automation. Uh, you haven't done that. Why? Um, we're semi-automated is probably a, another way of putting it, but the process is being um, a factory in downtown Lilydale, as you say, in, West, in, in Victoria. Um, it gives us the flexibility to be running different products at the same time to help service our customers' uh, needs, wants um, and markets. So can you explain that, how that's better than automation? Sometimes I wish it was fully automated, but um, we could be running two different types of product in the packing lines in the bakery right, and running a separate product line and packing it into the cardboard cartons or the packets in another area. Um, so you've got things that are in paperboard boxes or packets, and then you've got a uh, product that's in, say, printed film or something like that, and that allows us to give flexibility in our manufacturing process. So you're not automated. That means you're pretty heavily hand handmade. To a point, yes, um, which helps us with our QA because we've got certain checkpoints all the way through, from mixing to sorting to packing to making sure that the product is 100% correct and right before it gets put into a box. And it goes through an oven on a conveyor? or No, in- it's uh, put through on a rack oven, what they call a rack oven, oven. <clears throat> computer-controlled rack, rota- rotating rack oven. 
So, which, which again is more hand than automation. It, it's it's personalised, if you want to call it. That. Yeah. But uh, you're saying having having people do it rather than machines ensures there's better quality. The quality is preserved. Correct. You know, with the changes and keeping up with the 21st century, um, basically we might have changed the processes, but the recipe hasn't changed. So it's still a recipe that's been floating around here in, for 30-odd years. And much older before it Absolutely. got into the factory. Yes. yes. Yeah, just like Grandma used to make. Well, yes, you could put it that way. <laughs> Absolutely. The, um, you know, if it's not broken and the taste is right, and the best way to to try a product is to taste it and if you like it you'll buy it and they are buying it and they are buying it. I, I guess you don't want to talk numbers but some idea of the volume how many packs or whatnot that you produce in a month week or year it varies based on seasonal climatic conditions and of course economic conditions because of the market area that we fit into um, but we would move something well as an example a 20-foot container of shortbread Right, has something like about 2 million individual biscuits in it. And we would move something like 16 to 15 to 16 containers a year just for the export market. So, And we're also covering Coles, Woolworths, Aldi and so forth like that at the same time. A whole lot. So, so it, might be, it might not be fully automated, but it's certainly... We try hard to certainly make it efficient. Yeah, well, it sounds like it. You get pushing out what's sixteen odd twenty foot equivalent containers in a year is pretty good. Yeah, thank you. And of course, you've got Coles and Woolies and Aldi sign up here. Yes. And how do you find that? They're fine. They have their issues. They have their issues. Um, we all have our issues. Um, but communication um, is one of the major major processes uh, getting to know your buyers getting to know the people they know the product so you know you you're still working on relationships so how do you do that well we have reviews with uh coles and woolworths and aldi on a twice a year process where we submit new product and all those sort of things uh for instance the our macadamia butterfingers macadamia shortbread's been in coles for 30 odd years so your local market is still your major market at the moment, uh, praying for the way the Australian dollar is falling at, at, at the, this current point in time is an absolute bonus. Um, so probably before that, when the Australian dollar was similar to what it is now, um, 50-50, 50% exports, 50% local, was what it was, and that would be nice to get it back to that. So around an 84-cent dollar is pretty good. Uh, yes. Howard Dre, thank you very much for your time. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thanks, Howard. Thank you very much. Well, there's a man who uh, joined the company as an employee, liked what he saw, and he bought the company. Absolutely, and he's done really well. He has indeed, and uh, so uh, what is it, two million bickies a, a year going out of there just for export? That's right, and uh, he, none of it's automated. No. It's all done by hand. It's all hand stuff, and very much an old Scottish recipe, so if I were uh, wearing a kilt and flogging shortbread up in Scotland, I'd be watching, Howard. Absolutely, yes. And now Nick Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, what's your assessment of the situation in Greece? 
Uh, I think the situation is one of immense promise, not just for Greece, but for the whole of Europe. But, of course, that's not the way it's being portrayed. I, I doubt if that's the way it's being seen by the uh, surplus countries like Germany, and it's not the way it's being presented by the media. It's being presented by the media as a, a, a nice confrontational drama and also as a morality play where the Greeks play the spendthrift bad guys, and they are spendthrift bad guys in many ways, and uh, the Germans play the upright Protestant citizens and uh, the the pity of it is that the, the Greeks are actually presenting a possibility for Europe to address its major, the, the massive macroeconomic problems that the euro has given it and uh, I guess the chances of that opportunity being seized are probably less than 10% but uh, they're, worth, uh, they're worth talking about. Tell us about that opportunity. Well, it's probably best to explain it. I, I, I explain it by going all the way back to Breton Woods, which was a conference held in World War II in 1944 in uh, New Hampshire, I think it was. Uh, uh, and basically the main players were the UK and the United States, and they were talking about the financial architecture for the post-war world, the, war, 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 the world that they knew they were going to be in when they... Got, uh, when they uh, managed to tidy up World War Two, and there was a great. In fact, there's a marvelous quote by Keynes, who was one of the main actors at the conference, and he said he wrote to someone in 1943, and he said, "Here I am at the Treasury again, like a recurring decimal." He, he was at the Treasury in World War One as well, and he said, "But this time it actually will be different because everybody knows that we can't just try and get back to the past because the past was a disaster." and Breton Woods was about building a better world and it did a remarkable job of that and Keynes's great insight uh, which he'd worked on in the in the general theory was to see that there was an asymmetry right at the heart of the international architecture and the asymmetry is that if you're a debtor country if you're a country that has imported more than you've exported for a fair while you end up in debt and all of the pressure to adjust to that problem comes on you Whereas, in fact, for every debtor, there is a, uh, a, uh, a lender and for every import and for every trade deficit uh, or current account deficit, there is a trade surplus or a current account surplus. And Keynes was arguing that the post-war architecture needed to be set up in such a way that as much pressure came on surplus countries as came on deficit countries. What we have in Europe is, as somebody tweeted marvellously about four years ago, Europe, has, after 70 years, has finally got back to the monetary architecture that gave it the Great Depression. That was the gold standard in which everybody's uh, national currencies were linked uh, via gold and therefore fixed. And so if a country got into trouble, it couldn't devalue. It was very difficult for it to devalue. And the suffering simply went on and on because it's extremely difficult for economies to suffer from deflation. It's very hard to bring deflation on. And when you bring it on, it's got a whole lot of problems with it. Just ask yourself how easy it is to get workers to accept lower wages to get you some idea of how hard it is for a country to lower its price level. So here we are in Europe. 
with Germany running huge surpluses, the, the periphery running huge deficits or having run huge deficits, and that has to be adjusted. But Germany wants to keep running the surpluses, so it's incredibly difficult for the deficit countries to... This, this adjustment that has to happen is incredibly painful. Now, in a sense, the Greeks are the worst possible case for putting this because all the moralizing about deficits actually makes sense for Greece. Greece is a poorly run crony economy that has spent more that, that has tried to live beyond its means forever and a day and before uh, before exchange rates were fixed uh, or, or rather they came into a common currency uh, that really wasn't too much of a problem. Uh, Greece got rich slower than Germany, but apart from that, there were no crises. Uh, so the pity of it is that Greece has been profligate, but the punishment that it's now going through is vastly disproportionate to its suffering uh, and, uh, sorry, to its crime, and countries like Ireland and Spain, who were in nearly as bad trouble, weren't doing bad things at all. They were doing very good things. So, so this is the opportunity before uh, Europe. But if we see it as a morality play, if we focus on the on the uh, you know if if the big the big guys want to win the battle, the Germans can beat the the, the Greeks, then all of that opportunity uh, will be lost. So, what are you proposing as a solution? Uh, well, the solution, the, the simplest solution is is that. Germany should play the role that America played after World War II, which is to expand its economy, to be a to be more of a mar- and to be a, a great export market for the deficit countries. And as far as prices are concerned, as far as competitiveness is concerned, uh, it should, if the EU has a an inflation target of two percent probably should be three or four, but let's uh, certainly in the in the next few years. But if the EU countries have an inflation target of two percent, then prices are going backwards. There, there's deflation in uh, Greece, there's deflation in Spain, there's deflation in Ireland. I think there's deflation in Italy. It pretty much it's pretty obvious that Germany should be running inflation at over two percent, and they refuse to do so. Uh, and there, I think their latest year-on-year inflation rate was 0.5%. That puts all the adjustment pressure on the periphery countries and uh, is is incredibly painful and incredibly inefficient uh, way of making that adjustment in competitiveness between the German economies and the periphery. So Germany should allow for inflation? Yeah, Germany should be trying to reflate its economy. It should be trying to, and, and the thing is that this is this should be fun. You know, this is uh, <laughs> this is more Germans going out to dinner, more Germans going to the movies, uh, more Germans going on holiday. I mean, what is there not to like? But the German industrial machine is addicted to trade surpluses, and that's as much of the problem as Greece being addicted to trying to live beyond its means. It's certainly not living beyond its means now. 25% of the workforce are unemployed, over 50% of youth are unemployed, and most of those unemployed people are long-term unemployed, and long-term unemployed people's lives are blighted. This is an absolute catastrophe. So what you're saying is the solution doesn't come from Greece. It has to come from Germany. Well, there's a lot of the solution is coming from Greece. So Greece is lowering its costs quite fast, 
but it also has to come from Germany. And if Germany would be part of the solution, it wouldn't just be Greece trying to help itself, you know, the, the, the massive unemployment gradually lowering costs. It would also help Spain. It would help Ireland. It would help Italy. Uh, so, yes, there has to be a symmetrical uh, adjustment as much by the Germans as by the periphery countries. And it's been the German refusal to do that which has been one of the major problems. Uh, certainly the case with Spain and Ireland, somewhat less the case with, with Greece because Greece unfortunately has a habit of just saying, please give us more money. Uh, so you can argue that there's some case for a tougher tougher medicine for Greece, but that tougher medicine is actually for people, not, not for a country, and nobody could argue that Greece hasn't had tough medicine by now. It's, its economy, it, its suffering, its economic suffering is, is, is greatly worse than the Great Depression. I mean, just think about that. Just one more stat for you. 25% of the workforce are unemployed, but... At the same time, a lot of Greek production, what production is left, has been switched from domestic consumption to exports. So, in fact, Greek consumption, the amount of income that Greeks live on, has fallen by 40%. Can you imagine what might happen socially and politically in Australia if we suddenly found ourselves living on 60% of what we are now? Uh, I, it, it's, it's, you know, it's not very surprising that the Nazi party gets 6% of the vote. And, uh, frankly, I think we're pretty lucky that we've got a, a, a left wing party in, which is not particular, which is not, you know, in the scheme of things and certainly by the, by comparison with the 1930s, uh, all that radical. Um, they seem to be reasonably, coherent and sane in their in in what they're seeking well they're asking for a bridging loan instead of a, a bailout well they're what they're trying to do as i understand it is they're happy to try and collaborate with the with with the eu and the troika uh, the their debtors in dressing up what would be uh, you know, a further bailout as perhaps lower interest payments or something like that. But the Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, uh, who used to teach uh, at Sydney University, by the way, has been doing a, a barnstorming tour around the EU, arguing this, this wider case that... He wants Germany to be a hegemon, to, 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 to act in the way that America acted uh, after World War II. And had America not acted after, in the way that it did after World War II with the Marshall Plan, a, a big plan of investment into, uh, and, and in fact gifts, uh, capital uh, to Europe, then we may well have found the global economy after World War Two, doing roughly what it did after World War One, which was not a pretty sight and was in fact an important part of the reason why we got World War Two. And so you would hope that Germany would go the same way? Yeah, and I, I, of course I do, and I don't expect they will. But uh, I'm, I, I recently was in Berlin and I saw Angela Merkel quite up close in a, in a meeting room, and uh, I'm a big fan of her style, but unfortunately this is something which she's uh, taken to heart that, uh, you know, the 
the Swabian housewife, the, the the prudence, all this kind of stuff, and the retire, you know, in in the long run, that's a that in many ways that's a nice uh, that's that's a fine attribute. Unfortunately, in these circumstances, it's uh, massively toxic for the future of Europe and and the future of the world. Nicholas Green, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. So, what do you think, Leon? Well, I think Nick's got a point. The Germans have a lot to do, and the Germans are playing a very have to play a very key role in rescuing the eurozone. And perhaps he's right; they have to take a role as the Americans did after the Second World War. I think that's right. But the biggest problem with Germany, of course, is the spectre of the between the wars inflation. That's right. And uh, when people were papering their walls. With Deutschmarks. I've got a collection, a stamp collection made when I was a kid, and we've got overprinted German stamps. Uh, I think it's 20 million Deutschmarks. That's amazing. A dollar, US dollar, was worth about 20 million marks. Frightening. So now the news, Leon. Well, the big news coming out of uh, the negotiations with Greece, Gary, is that Greece is submitting a request to extend a rescue loan agreement with the other Eurozone governments. And the request will be for an extension of the loan agreement and not the bailout by four to six months. That actually repeats a distinction being made by the Greeks. They want an extension which is like a bridging loan, but not another bailout. Now, a meeting with creditors is scheduled for Friday. Now, Greek government officials say the term bailout implies the government will have to accept the austerity measures agreed by previous governments, whereas a loan extension would be agreed under different terms. Greece's official creditors have said there would be leeway for changing some conditions of the bailout. They're looking very carefully at the wording, and a request might help unlock an impasse that emerged over Greece's finances at a meeting of Eurozone finance ministers on Monday night between Greece and the rest of Europe. Now, the hard-left government of Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras is trying to win a radical overhaul in terms of its 240 billion euro, well, it's 350 billion Aussie dollar bailout, which it says has damaged the Greek economy after years of imposed austerity. But Greece's EU partners demand that before they agree to ease up on the austerity conditions, Athens has to, extend to, has to agree to extend the current programs and its harsh terms by at least a few months. This is very, very lime ball at the moment, Gary, because Greece's bailout program expires at the end of February. And if Athens doesn't ask for an extension, it will be left without financing just weeks before it has to repay loans to the International Monetary Fund on March the 15th. All very delicate. I don't think they're going to squeeze Greece too hard because uh, that would just lead the, uh, lead the Greeks out of the EU. No, no. And as uh, Nick Green says, Germany will play a key role here. To Australia, and we had a very bearish note from JP Morgan during the week saying the Australian economy is sliding down the precipice due to what it calls glacial reform efforts, such as a weakness with a weakness in domestic demand that was, they say, uh, is recession-like. Now, JP Morgan analyst Stephen Walters argues in his note that Australia is failing to make up the lag created by the plunge in mining investment. Furthermore, the Reserve Bank is trying to mask the economy's structural weakness with monetary stimulus, that is, cutting interest rates. Yeah, and we're about it as far as anybody feels they can go. That's right. And he pins the blame for poor non-mining investment on several factors. One, persistently low and fragile business sentiment, as reflected by the National Australia Bank and Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry Business Surveys. High business costs. Chronic in 
reform inertia. The, the 2000 tax reforms, which introduced the GST, was actually the last major enduring change. Since then, we've had attempts at addressing climate change, further tax reform, asset sales to boost public infrastructure, and liberalising the industrial relations landscape. That's either failed or legislative measures were later reversed by later governments. Yeah, like the tunnel in Melbourne, although that's arguable. The, <clears throat> there's an alternative scheme at the moment. That's, that right. All right. that's right. Rigid labour markets. Now Australia has on key measures more rigid labour markets than any competitors and punishingly high penalty rates and average wage earnings that in 2013 was 70% above the global mean. What he's saying is we have an unstable political environment and that's going to make more reform more difficult than ever before. Yeah, oversensitivity in, in Canberra and come to that, the states about uh, minority groups and whatnot. Um, so you're not going to get any change much on, on penalty rates, which are enormous at the weekend. That's right. Well, the issue too is you've got a prime minister who is now battling for his job and he's not going to do anything too radical. If they have a change in leadership, it's only a year out from the next election, so they won't be doing it, Matt. No, but it it's just con- continues the instability. We had a uh, we had figures showing that concerns about job security and weak wages growth have sent consumer confidence down to a six-month low, Gary. ANZ Roy Morgan's weekly consumer confidence fell index fell 1.7% to its lowest level since August. I mean, that leaves the index well below its long-run average. And worryingly, the Westpac Melbourne Institute leading index only rose by 0.3 percentage points. And what that shows is Australia was going to grow at below trend pace of 2.75% for 2015, Gary. Yeah, again, it's confidence and money works when it's going round. That's right. Interestingly, Toll Holdings has received a takeover approach from Japan Post and it values Toll at $6.5 billion. Which is very generous and rather more than the thing's worth. And Toll Holdings has recommended shareholders accept the takeover and the deal gives former Toll boss Paul Little a windfall of some three. $140 $140 million. Well, he'll spend it well. I think he will. I think he will. Now, Trade Minister Andrew Robb is pushing for greater access to the US market for Australian sugar export, as expectations meant that the giant 12-nation Trans-Pacific Partnership could be wrapped up by May. Now, access for sugar to the US market has been a key focus of the government's final push on the TPP, and sugar was actually not included in the US Free Trade Agreement when it was signed a decade ago. It's going to be an interesting fight, though, because the sugar lobby in the US is uh, enormously strong, nearly as much as the beef lobby. Bad news for Leighton. They're in all sorts of trouble. Indian police want to speak to the Leighton Holdings executive Bruce Munro over allegations he duped a business partner in a multi-billion dollar deal. Munro, who's managing director of Leighton's TIS unit, is subject of three court-approved summons from Indian police to be interrogated, as well as he has to provide phone records and email communications to the authority. Leighton also stands accused of concealing the true state of its financial position in a potential breach of the continuous disclosure laws. Alan Henry, a former senior technical manager of a construction giant, alleged in the federal court that several top executives of the firm have been publicly exaggerating revenues to ensure positive perceptions of the company's finances. And in, an un- in his unfair dismissal case, he declares that Leighton Chief Operating Officer Adolfo Valderas knew of major pr- project blowouts, but intentionally chose to disregard their significance. And that has huge sig- implications for Leighton in terms of continuous disclosure, Gary. The Australian Council of Trade Unions is going to lodge a claim with the Fair Work Commission giving workers the right to return to work on reduced or part-time hours after parental leave. The ACTU claim would place more onus on employers to agree to requests from employees who want to change their hours 
after the birth of a child. And if the position no longer exists, or there are substantial business grounds, the ACTU believes the employer should offer to accommodate the employee's return to work on reduced hour in a position that's equivalent in status and pay. And it says the employer can only refuse to accommodate on substantial business grounds. Now, this claim would give the employee who has temporarily changed their work after parental leave the right to revert to the work arrangements they had before parental leave for up to two years from the birth or the adoption of a child, Gary. Now, 10 Network is reportedly mulling the prospect of remaining a standalone company because its ratings are improving. Now, you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about how 10 had received all these takeover offers from uh, Foxtel and Discovery Communications, Gary. Their independent directors are considering dumping the company sales process thanks to its improved ratings and the news comes at an interesting time because major 10 shareholder bruce gordon who has 14.99 percent of the company is hesitant to accept at 23 cents a scheme of arrangement and that makes it the deal almost impossible now with the likelihood of 10 continuing as an independent company apparently increasing the broadcast expected to book encouraging ad revenue share numbers and 10 fortunes have been improving with successful ratings from shows like I'm a Celebrity and Get Me Out of Here. And Gary, the profit season is continuing and ANZ has posted a cash profit of $1.79 billion. That's higher than the $1.73 billion a year ago. Macquarie's assets under management increased $543.3 billion. That's up from $423.3 billion. Bendigo and Adelaide Bank reported a cash profit of $217.9 million. That's up 77.2% on 185.9 the previous year. Coca-Cola Amatel reported a full-year net profit for the 12 months of $272.1 million. That's up 241%. Their actual profits, their underlying profits, actually fell 25% because kids aren't drinking sweet drinks anymore. Now, online job service job provider Seek's first half profit surged 64% to $182.8 million, driven by growth across all divisions in another record result. Pacific Brands posted a net loss of 108.7 million compared to a net loss of 218.49 million. Well, it's getting better for them. Iluka Resources posted a net loss of 62.5 million, which is down on the 18.5 million dollar profit the year before. Iron ore miner Fortescue suffered an 81% decline in net profit to 331 million down from the um, $1.7 billion profit a year ago. Amcor reported a net profit of $321.3 million. That's up 6.7%. Rail freight group Horizon posted a net profit of $308 million, which is up 188% on the previous year's $107 million. G8 Education lifted its profit to $52.7 million. That's up 70%. Perseus Mining delivered a $40.5 million net profit. IAG posted a net profit of $579 million, which is up 9.8% on the previous corresponding period, $642 million. Mining and Minerals Group Arium declared a loss of $1.5 billion. Oil and Gas Explorer Woodside posted a net profit of $2.4 billion, which is up 38%. Now, I don't know how they did that with the falling oil price. Primary Healthcare posted a net profit of $53.3 million, a 6.2% increase on the $50.2 million delivered in the previous corresponding period. And Seven West posted a net loss of $993.6 million, and that's significantly down from its $150.1 million net profit in the previous corresponding period. Yeah, and that's it for this week, Gary. Next week, we're going to have an interesting uh, interview with Sandrine Graymard, who runs uh, Treetop Adventure Parks. Until then, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. We'll be back next week. Stay safe, and we look forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.